It's the All Things Strange Podcast. We are your hosts, Agent Anderson and Agent Ether. Come along as we examine UFO sightings, conspiracies, and all things strange. You can check out all of our wonderful links in the description on the link tree where you can find our Patreon, our Discord, our merchandise, and more. This week's episode, The UFOs of 1947. So you seemed really excited about this one. You told me you wanted to do a whole year, the UFO wave of 1947, to which I asked you, will we be looking at any Blue Book files? And Agent Anderson reminded me that this was right before Project Blue Book was started. Blue Book did not exist yet. Yeah, let me look up when Project Saucer started. I think it was late 1947, but... I've got the interwebs in front of here. Oh, Project Sign, Project Saucer, sometimes, you know, tomato, 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 tomato. Let's see. Um, 1948, according to this. So, yeah, 19, it didn't even start until 1948. That was Project Sign, which turned into Project Grudge, which then turned into Project Blue Book. So but, of this, course, we, we have this wave kind of preceding Project Blue Book, leading up to Project Blue Book, and those are the files we're going to discuss. Yeah, and you could say that the 1947 UFO flap is what led to the creation of Project Blue Book. That always tickles my fancy flap, UFO flap, like it's a bunch yeah. of birds or something. <laughs> Just imagine, you know, somebody flapping around their arms. <laughs> oh no, <Exactly>. UFO! <laughs> <laughs> is that why they call it a flap? Well, in Rupert's book that I've read on the podcast in the past, if you want, if you're interested in that sort of thing, uh, he just he says that a flap is a state of confusion, and I guess it was like a military term. I don't know. Oh it's, yeah, good to know. It's still in use to this day, even though it's a very old term. His book on ufology. No, it's the report on unidentified flying objects. And just a review for those of you unfamiliar. Captain Ruppelt was the head of Project Blue Book for a fairly long time, and he had an insider view, and he wrote a whole book about it. Now, his book needs to be taken with a grain of salt for reasons which I've discussed in the past, but it's still an extremely interesting look into the world of Project Blue Book. Totally. Yeah. So I was excited about this one because normally we go into depth on a single UFO case, but this time we get to look at a whole bunch of them. A ton. I don't think we're going to get through all of them. This might be a multi-parter. Yeah, I think we're going to probably not get through all of them. It very well could be a multi-parter. That's what I'm expecting because there's so many cases. A lot of these cases are... could We could do a whole episode on a lot of these cases by themselves. They're that interesting. But I wanted to do... You know, instead of saying there's a bunch of cases like this or a lot of stuff happened, let's take a look. What happened? What happened during a lot of these cases in this world, this UFO, worldwide UFO flap? So as you know, if you've listened to this show before, the modern UFO era began in 1947 with the Kenneth Arnold sighting. That's a little misleading. That's just sort of a date that has been picked. But there were plenty of UFO sightings before 1947. And it does seem that an uptick in UFO sightings coincided with World War II, possibly the detonation of the first nuclear bomb. There does seem to be some correlation there, but I don't know for sure if that is the case. Maybe they were even before then. I don't know. I do know that some people have argued that the reason there were so many UFO sightings was that it was inundated in the culture of that time. There were a lot of comics and TV shows and stories that came out. At the same time, you could argue that the reason that it was so part of the culture of the time was because there were these sightings. Exactly. Which, you know, is it the dog wagging the tail or the tail wagging the dog, you know? And that's exactly true. There were a lot of, you know, science fiction shows about aliens and UFOs, but there were also a tremendous number of UFO sightings. Exactly. Yeah. So who knows? Could be anything's possible. 
Uh, I don't think, you know, when we get to some of these sightings, that's a skeptical explanation. But when you look at some of these sightings and some of the witnesses who are very serious people, policemen, military, whatever, people who are not going to make up a yarn because it would cost them their reputations and their careers, um, and look at some of their descriptions, I don't think you can really say that this is due to somebody having seen something on TV or in the movie theater and then going to work on Monday and thinking that they saw that. Exactly. In real life. Maybe that happens a few times, but if you pay attention to the sightings, especially sightings with multiple independent witnesses, it just kind of rules that out entirely, you know? Preach it, Anderson. Hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's get into some of these. Um, let's see, I said that. Okay, so let's get in. The first one I have for 1947 happened in sometime in January in England. No specified date to this case. Unfortunately, a lot of these cases, these are very old cases, so we don't always have the best data for them. Some of them we do, some of them we don't. So there was a radar track at 30,000 feet over East Anglia coast at 400 miles an hour. This was logged as X362. Apparently, the Royal Air Force used X for anything unidentified. Pretty cool. You know, they're hip to the lingo, I guess. <laughs> this object was seen on radar several times, apparently, but the records are a little scarce on this one. All right, do you want to just switch off here, Agent Ether? Yeah, we can do that. Right. So then mid-January, January 16th, same year, right off of Holland in the North Sea, you have an RAF pilot of a mosquito. That's a type of plane, right? Yeah. Mosquito plane. And he had a similar encounter, and he caught a UFO or unidentified flying object, and he went ahead and reported it. Um, there's some additional information here, some additional documentation that I was actually looking at before. And just like you might find in, in Project Blue Book where there's a item itemized list of what happened and how to report the event, there's some specific identification to this case. Um, for example, it happened at 2230. Uh, 50 miles off of the Dutch coast of Norfolk, Eland, England. I cannot talk today. The England. England. The exact longitudinal and latitude coordinates are given. So that's kind of cool. You can fly out there, check out the exact location for yourselves. The altitude was at 22,000 feet, and its speed, of course, was far faster than that of the little little plane. It had evasive, controlled action and the weather conditions were at night. And the the brief description I saw it kind of sounded like it was playing with the pilot a little bit like it would slow down and let the pilot catch up and then it would speed up to get away from him. We've seen this many times in cases. Yeah, and some reports put it at a speed of 1000 miles per hour. Dang. Yeah, that's pretty fast. We didn't have anything back then that could maneuver like this and go that fast. Uh, no. <laughs> no, not at all. They were still mostly driving around in uh, propeller or piston-driven propeller airplanes back then, you know. I'm sure they were working on jets a little bit, but I don't think that was what most people were in. Was the Mosquito a jet? I don't know. Let me see. Let's Google it. Why not? No, let's not get sidetracked on it. <laughs> <laughs> onto that kind of stuff. We'll be here all night. We will. We got to stay focused. Yeah, and that incident is considered by many to be the beginning of the 1947 UFO wave or flap. Uh, why did they pick that one? I don't know. Maybe it's the first one that they have a solid date for. It's in January, so it's early in the year. We have another one the following day on January 17th, also over the North Sea uh, um, in the afternoon. We don't have more specific time than that that I could find. Two radar stations in Lincolnshire tracked an exceptionally good track at 10,000 feet above the North Sea. Meteor jets from the 245 squad were placed on standby, but the plot faded. At 1945, the station at Humberstone, which was one of the two that I mentioned above, saw um once again saw an x-rays they called they called unidentified sometimes x-rays because <laughs> it's like 
they're worried that it's a bad guy trying to raid them, you know? Well, that makes sense, actually. Now that I think about it, they don't know if it's an enemy. Right. Hostility. Well, at this time, it was the height of the Cold War, as it always was during the Cold War. And they were, there were serious concerns of foreign powers overflying their airspace and possibly doing nefarious things. I mean, this was, you know, just after World War II. So people were on high alert for everything, especially, I'm, I'm sure, in, in England, which had some, you know, the brunt of attacks from Germany, you know, with the buzz bombs and air raids and all the crazy stuff that went on. So they were probably on high alert at this time. So at, he saw a second track <clears throat> or, or X-raid over the sea for 30 minutes, and it was traveling over 200 miles an hour. All right, and our next case takes place in Augusta, Australia on February 6th. And I don't want to get too off tangent, but I didn't tell you. So we watched Arachnophobia, which I had not seen before. It's a movie from, I believe, the 90s. And it wasn't even that scary. I had a lot of fun watching it. And I do have a slight phobia of spiders after I got bitten by one. Um, And it was not pleasant. Like, my whole neck and shoulders stiffened, and I had a mild fever. Like, I had an allergic reaction to it. It could have even been a black widow, and I probably should have gone to the doctor. And so the night before last, I had a dream (laughs) that there was a huge spider in my bedroom, bigger than the ones in arachnophobia. (laughs) And I was like, I'm going to be brave. I'm going to show everyone. I'm going to show Agent Anderson that even though I'm scared of spiders, I got it under control. So I took like a a big container, like a Tupperware, and I slammed it over that son of a you-know-what. And it was such a big spider as it jumped around inside the Tupperware, I had trouble holding it. Oh, really? Yeah, the Tupperware was like sliding around on the wall. And I'm like, how on earth am I going to kill this bugger? And I got a shoe and I had to hit it like multiple times. You could hear it like cracking, you know, like a little spider would, but like a light bulb. Wow. As it, So anyways, I have nightmares about spiders and I don't want to get down on Australia. We have so many listeners, thank you listeners, from Australia who are listening. Yeah, you guys are awesome. I hope to visit sometime. But this reminded me of... <laughs> but is there <laughs> is there a city in Australia where stuff doesn't want to kill you? You That's- know, it's... No, it's... You know, they have beautiful cities right off the beach with really temperate weather. I think unless you're, you know, headed out to the uh, the outback and the brush to kind of search for danger, you're probably okay, you know? I don't hear a lot of stuff in the news about weird, dangerous, poisonous snakes and spiders showing up, you know? I don't know. I heard that gangs of koala bears like to raid villages <laughs> at night on the outskirts of the cities. <laughs> gangs of koala bears. You are ridiculous. <laughs> so back to this case in Port Augusta. It took place at 9 a.m. and there were a couple of workmen at a railway workshop, the Commonwealth Railway Workshop, and they saw five objects and they were in a formation pass from the sky, starting from the north and heading towards south. They were white or pinkish in color and shaped like uh, ovals, like eggs. And they couldn't tell the size of the object because they were so far away, but they did cast shadows over the trains. So he thought they were about the size of the trains. It kept a direct course. It was up at about 6,000 feet, and it was close enough that they could see them quivering or shaking. And then they were out of sight within a couple seconds. They were traveling pretty pretty quickly. And then a few minutes later... Um, yeah, so from what I remember from that one, from when I read it, yeah, there were, the witnesses were not all together. They were, yeah, there were yeah. different groups of people. So there, was a, there were people working at the railway workshop and different groups of them saw and the same objects and gave identical descriptions. Independent witnesses. Yeah, which is the best. And they, this was actually written up in the paper uh, twice. There was an article and then there was a follow-up article as well with statements from the witnesses. Hmm. And the motion description that it looks like it quivered as it moved reminds me an awful lot of Kenneth Arnold's sighting because he said that they wavered as they moved. He described it differently. We did a whole episode on that one, but they didn't move in a straight line, you know? 
Yeah. He said they moved as if like he moved, they moved like saucers skipping on water. And that's where we get the term flying saucer. And there is actually a copy online of uh, one of the original newspaper articles, but I can't make it out. It's kind of smeared. Yeah, that happens a lot of the time. Either it's too faint or it's a lot of that old stuff's hard to read. All right. And then moving on. Yeah. February 28th, six miles south of Lima, Peru. A witness was driving and saw a shiny sand-colored disc hovering six feet off the ground. Three creatures, humanoid creatures, emerged from the craft. They looked mummy-like, and their legs appeared fused together. You getting creeped out yet? Uh, I'm already creeped out enough by my dream. (laughs) They wore something like mittens on their hands, and they had opposable thumbs. Their skin was also sand-colored, and they had no facial features. Okay. So we're talking about an actual sighting of aliens versus yes. versus UFOs. Actual alien creatures. Now, that's pretty much all there is to this one. That's Apparently, this one's not super well documented, whatever that means. So it might be questionable, but it's creepy ass sighting you know i've seen you've seen those mummy like ones in in movies not the aliens that look kind of like nice and looks like they use a skin moisturizer but the ones where their skin looks all wrinkled and stuff it's just way creepier to me i don't know all right i'm moving forward in time we have a sighting april uh, at 11 a.m it doesn't give a date a meteorologist so weatherman Minskowski saw a silvery disc through his theodolite, which I had to look up. I hadn't heard of it before. And it's an optical instrument, and it's made for measuring angles between two different points. So it's actually for topography. Yeah, it's... Uh, and then there's one that records stuff would be a cinetheodolite. I don't know if they even had those back then. I had to look that up because Rupert talked about them in his book, and I had no idea how to pronounce it. <laughs> So he's looking through there. He observed this strange metallic object on three different locations occasions during a six-month period. Oh, and here's a different document. It says from November 46. Right, 1946. To April 47. And a document states that there is no astronomical explanation of this incident. But of course, because he had this instrument, he had a lot of information about the, uh, you know, altitude, the size, and the speed, and it was nothing that could be explained. Nothing that could be explained, and it was a pre-Arnold sighting. Definitely not, you know, American. Probably not Soviet Union. Yeah. So, yeah, very, very interesting. And the best part is that I I saw that. He witnessed it while looking at a weather balloon. So yes, it yes. was it was not a weather balloon. <laughs> yeah, the balloon was at about twenty seven thousand feet when he saw the object. Yeah, so you can't say this one was a weather balloon, guys. No, definitely not. <laughs> All right, next up, uh, April from Richmond, Virginia. No, that's the one I did. Oh wait, wait. So you, you okay? Yeah, never mind. You you skipped one then, didn't did you? I really? Yeah. There's. Oh, um, that's because there's question marks. Oh wait, Lima, Peru. Yeah, I'll do. I'll do that. Okay. One. So April, date unknown. Again, in uh, Col de Serre, a dude named Maxime Orleange saw a disc-shaped object with a dome on top passing overhead. There was a blue light where the dome met the disc. It appeared 30 meters in diameter. And when it was about 400 meters away, it shot straight up and disappeared. You know, he actually went under hypnosis. Oh, really? Yeah, and afterwards insisted that... And afterwards insisted it was actually in 1952 and not 1942. Eight or forty-nine that he witnessed the event. Oh, weird! So th- I don't know. It's weird. There's some con- inconsistencies there that I maybe saw. maybe that's why that one has the question mark. Yes, actually, that's a really good point. Yeah. All right. So moving on to May fifth in Seattle, Washington, at three thirty p.m., 
There were three witnesses who witnessed a silver object which appeared to nosedive, and they thought it was going to crash, but right before it hit the ground, it actually disintegrated, and they described it as having a long pillar of gas hanging in the sky, and it didn't blow away like a plane trail or chemtrail would. <laughs> <laughs> But it it remained in the air, and they said that it was traveling at a very high speed with erratic motions. Once again, similar to the Kenneth Arnold sighting, that's one thing I find interesting is when you see during a UFO flap, you will very often see similar sightings all over the place, all over the world sometimes. And there's actually a classified document to go with this one that has been released. It's to the FBI. And it still has some names redacted. Um, in fact, it has his name redacted, which is funny because we know who it is, right? Yeah. Um, so he was driving near Montana, Deer Lodge, Montan- Montana, when he saw the object. Let's see. No additional information really is in this report. Still interesting. There's a classified document that got released, though. Yeah, that's always cool. Yeah. Because it's like you get a little peek behind the curtain. Like, foya, baby. Yeah, especially way back in this in the 40s, they had no idea that foya would ever be a thing. Whereas these days, I think they're a lot better at covering their tracks and avoiding foya. Not always, but usually, because they know it's a thing. But back then, they didn't know it was a thing. All right, next up, Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, on May 17th. 1947, possibly May 19th, at 8.30 to 9 p.m., field engineer Savage saw a round, a frosty white round and flat object. It had, it was, had a diameter to thickness ratio of 10 to 1, and it was approximately the size of a B-29, which is, you know, B-29 is pretty big. So we're not talking about a little thing here. So a, a flat, a flattish object that's very large. It was traveling north at about 10,000 feet, and it was moving approximately three times the speed of a jet, estimated at 1,800 miles an hour, with a slight swishing sound. Apparently, he witnessed this for about 30 minutes. Now, let's see if there's... Any extra notations here? Uh, Frosty white object? No. Okay, so that's pretty much all there is to this one. All right. Well, would you like to do the next one, Agent Ether? Sure. Towards the end of May, we have a sighting near Beaufort, South Carolina, at about 11 a.m. And I actually found a newspaper article here, which is dated July 5th from Augusta, Georgia, and it says a physician was certain Saturday that he saw flying saucers. Dr. Cohen R. Batty claims he spotted peculiar soaring disks six weeks ago in the middle of the day while fishing in St. Helena Sound near Beaufort, South Carolina. This was four weeks before the first published reports on the disks. He said that when he saw the four disks at 11 a.m., they were traveling at an altitude of more than 20,000 feet and a high rate of speed. He described them as silver, and unfortunately, the rest of the article is cut off. Aww. Aww. (laughs) Boo. Yeah, I know. He said it was going pretty fast, though, and he thought it was at about... 20,000 feet, and not just silvery, but very highly polished, like metallic on the undersides, and he could see a circular rim or a projection off of the edges. They were soundless, and they were so fast, they were out of sight within 20 seconds. And I guess the article was from the Augusta Chronicle, and it made the front page. Hmm, neat. All right, next up. Uh, Here, I'll finish with that one. I'm finished. All right. Next up, on June 2nd at uh, Rehoboth Beach, Delaware, a pilot named Forrest Winion was flying north at 1,400 feet and saw a silvery jar-shaped object that looked like it was about 15 inches in size (laughs) cross in front of his plane at 1,000 to 10,000 miles an hour, dang, heading east on a straight course at his altitude. 
and it had a silver-white fire exhaust. Um, there's some speculation that it might be a daytime meteor, but it doesn't sound like a meteor to me. And apparently, there there's a Blue Book file on this, but it must be... From, so a lot of what Blue Book did was they looked at previous sightings. They went through newspaper clippings and interviewed witnesses and stuff about things that happened in the past. So even though there wasn't really a Blue Book yet... They looked at reports from before the Blue Book was started, but um, the link to the Blue Book file provided here is no longer valid, so I'd have to do some digging to find that, unfortunately. But, all right, that's that one. June 8th. Yeah. I do not think this counts as a sighting, but I am going to go over it anyways because it's funny. (laughs) (laughs) There was a fisherman. He was out in the evening, Paula Zamet. And on the other boat, about 20 miles away, there was uh, another group, and they were catching fish when they saw a black submarine in the water. They thought it looked more like a monster at first than a submarine, so they're pulling in their nets. They're ready to cast off, and then they notice a bright light coming up. And something comes up out of the water, and little men begin running all over the top of the object, or the deck. Huh. They couldn't make out much details because there was so much light, and the little men were about as big as 10-year-olds. Afterwards, the little men entered the submarine, and it started to glow so brightly they couldn't see it anymore, and then it submerged once again. Had acid been invented in 1947? <laughs> I was like, that's not an encounter. I don't know what that is. That's just silly is what that is. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Like, what, I don't even know what to make of that, actually. That's just... <laughs> so, it's, I mean, there were multiple witnesses, right? Yeah, multiple witnesses, you know. I don't know. I mean, yeah, I don't know, man. It, it's it's actually, so I guess it's on a website, MUFOR, which is the Malta UFO research, similar to MUFON. And it's in there as a case summary, so 20 miles south of Malta. Well, there are some things that are so foreign to our minds that we have trouble comprehending. Them. Yeah, okay, moving on. <laughs> <laughs> All right, June 12th in Weiser, Idaho, at 6.15 p.m., A Mrs. H. Erickson saw two high-speed round objects glistening in the sun at a high altitude headed southeast in a formation moving up and down twice and leaving a vapor trail that persisted for over an hour. So there's a couple of different pieces here. Uh, The vapor trail persisting for over an hour, that absolutely can happen under the correct conditions, so there's nothing unusual there necessarily. The formation moving up and down is not necessarily strange because that could, I mean, aircrafts can do that, you know, depending on your viewing angle and all that sure, stuff. Sure. And two high speed round objects glistening in the sun. Well, there were certain, you know, aircraft that were, they were not painted, they were just like silvery colored aircraft. This one, to me, sounds like it was probably just a couple of aircraft flying around. I don't know. Yeah, but at that point, I think, I wouldn't say mass hysteria because that is absolutely not correct. and I do not like that term. But people had a heightened awareness of what was going on around them. Right. And not only that, at this time, people were aware of foreign threats and they saw it as their patriotic duty to report things like this to the government, whether it's their local police or whatever. Because everybody was aware that technology was advancing and everybody was worried that our foreign adversaries, really just Russia, were developing high technology and overflying it, uh, flying it over the United States, you know? Mm, Right. All right. What do you got next for us? Next, I have a case which I think could be an entire episode. It takes place in Bakersfield, so closer to home for us in, in June 14th of that year, there was a pilot, Richard Rankin, and a young boy, so two witnesses, saw a flying flapjack-shaped object, so I guess pancake formation. Or 10 objects. Oh, that's right. There were 10 of them, and they were shaped kind of like pancakes, and they were at 9,000 feet, 
and estimated to be moving at three to 400 miles per hour on a straight course. And then seven of them reversed course and returned at about 2.15. Now, this particular case, I was very disappointed because there's all these links to Fold3 Project Blue Book, including Hynek's evaluations and newspaper clippings. But when I clicked on them, they all are unavailable. So the, the links weren't found, which means you'd have to do a little bit of digging. But this would definitely be a great case, if there's so much information, to, to do as its own episode. Yeah, this like very this very well could be you know its own episode. Yeah, there's a lot of broken links on the interwebs. <laughs> it's a shame too. <laughs> Unfortunately, shame. yeah, it is what it is. You can find some of those in the Wayback Machine, but it takes a lot of time to click through all those stuff. To you I, know, if it's on Fold Three and it's searchable, then you might be able to find it more easily. Right. And you might think it's just that's not what today's episode's about. Right. Yeah. We wouldn't have time to search Fold 3 for all of these. It just, it would take so long. All right. Next up. Uh, so you did June 14th. Next up, June 19th in Webster, Massachusetts. This is apparently one of the earliest cases of humanoids. And um, it appeared in a Worcestershire newspaper. <laughs> Uh, this was a report by an older unidentified woman who saw an occupant inside an object who looked like a Navy officer. And that's all. That is vague. That's all there is to it. So I'm not sure what to make of that one. That one was kind of short. So maybe I'll do the next one as well. On June 20th in Hot Springs, New Mexico at 8 PM, a woman and her daughter saw three revolving groups of three discs in a triangular formation moving on a straight course south to northeast. Now, that sounds like something right out of a science fiction movie. I'm not saying that it is something out of a science... But what I, what I mean is that sounds very strange, and I could picture it, you know, discs that are spinning and in, moving in a... Tra- uh, that, one's, that one's pretty weird. I like it. All right, next up, June 21st, Spokane, Washington. At about 11.50... A civilian woman saw eight silvery, shiny, disc-shaped objects the size of a house flying very fast at about 600 miles an hour, traveling south-southwest at about 7,000 feet altitude. One of the objects passed below an aircraft, and then it fell like a falling leaf. So it had a falling leaf motion and landed in front of about 10 witnesses on the shore of the St. Joe River in Idaho. Wait a minute, is... Hold on, hold on a second. Spokane, Washington is nowhere near Idaho. <laughs> this case... <laughs> Wait, this let me see. This particular case doesn't make any sense. Let me look up where Spokane, Washington... Maybe it's like next to the border or something. I don't know. Let, let me look up a, a map here real quick. Because now I'm curious. All right, it's pulling up on uh, on the googly maps here. Uh, yeah, actually, it is. On, it, Spokane is actually really close to the border of Idaho, so that does make sense, actually. So it must have flown just over the border and then landed near. Okay, so that does make sense. I just my geography is not so good, I guess. All right. Oh, the Maury Island incident. You know, I don't know very I don't know much about this one except some people say it's a hoax. Yeah, so on June 21st, this is the famous Maury Island incident, one of the big cases of 1947, and um, we uh, did a whole case file on this one. Oh, it was a case file. I don't think I was on it. Yeah. We did a whole Yeah, you probably weren't. Uh, this one most people do think it's a hoax and it does kind of look like a hoax, but there are some compelling pieces of evidence for this case. So I don't know. I'm not necessarily convinced that it was a hoax, but it does look, well, just go listen to our episode we did on it. We did a whole case file, but it happened on June 21st and that's where it fits in on the, uh, the timeline there. And then a few days later, there's a report near Pendleton, Oregon. A guy was driving down a rural road. It's pretty remote when he heard a humming sound. 
And he was driving up over a rise, and he saw a field, and there was a large disc hovering about six feet off the ground. And there were two short figures, and they were wearing green suits and white helmets underneath the object. So if the object is six feet under the ground, and they're right under the object, I wonder how tall they were. Hmm. Right. Weird. Yeah. They're right under the object. And then they suddenly vanished and the craft shot towards the Columbian River. It circled around some mountain ranges and then it flew off. Hmm. Interesting case. A different, different from other cases I've heard. Uh, have not heard about the <laughs> green suits and white helmets before. Yeah, that's a new one. Do you notice on this here, we have a bunch in June. Did you notice that they're starting to pop up more cl- more clustered together with these sightings? I did. The next yeah. several are on the same date, same which, date. which is June 24th. June 24th. Yeah, like yeah. the next six. So the next one is June 24th in Richland, Washington at 2.30 p.m. L.G. Bernier observed three flat objects that were faster than P-38s. They were flying on a level course to the northwest. And did you want to do the next one? Well, I have a document here. It's 108 pages and it's a Whoa. sighting grid. For the for the June for the 230 sighting? For it looks like June through, I want to say it's 108 pages, so I'll just kind of scroll down and click and see where it ends. June through July. Wow. 108 okay. pages and it includes Let me scroll back up because this is amazing to have this kind of information. It includes the case number, the date, hour, and time zone, the state, town, local area, and type of vehicle, the name of the witness, the occupation of the witness, and then a description of the objects such as their size, shape, the number, how high there were. Uh, the route of the object, flight patterns, and if there was any noise, exhaust, traces, or effects. That is a tremendous resource. Yes, and it is it is quite detailed. Um, so, yeah, just a plethora <laughs> of cases. Agent Ether. Yes. How many cases are in a plethora <laughs> of cases? <laughs> 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 and was, was that linked on that case? Let me see. Yeah. I, oh my goodness. Okay, I can't look at all this stuff right now. It's we'll the get, best though, isn't it? We'll get too far sidetracked. I love I love finding that kind of stuff. Yeah. Well, that's you know, that's the thing. This this topic is really never ending, you know, UFOs in general. People sometimes ask me, like, are you are you worried about running out of topics or running out about running out of stuff to talk about on the show? It's like, no. We could probably do fifty episodes just on stuff from nineteen forty seven. So there's actually an interview with Mr. Lanier. Um, I don't know if it was taken from the papers. There's his address, of course, because they used to give addresses in the papers when they interviewed people, which I've talked about how amused amused I am by that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he said they were going west by southwest around 2 or 2.30 and were rather silvery and shaped as though a saucer were seen edgewise. I was worried that people might just laugh, which is why he had waited to come out and talked about them. They appeared something like a reflection from a plane, but was going too fast for any type of plane. I believe it may be a visitor from another planet more developed than ours. In my opinion, we are just beginning to see things this world never dreamed of. Very interesting. And I then f- there's okay, go I ahead. F- I was say I found that document you're talking about. This is pretty this is badass, dude. Yes. <laughs> I love it. I just wanted to say that. That's it. <laughs> and then there's uh, an additional witness. A little child named Jimmy, and his mom reported that when she came out, she she actually saw the disc right over the village. It seemed to be hovering, and it wavered. It started back and forth all of a sudden, reversed itself, and shot off to the northeast. The disc was bright, but very high in the air. It was round with a shimmering edge, as though that moved separately from the center. That is very detailed. That's That's weird. That's very interesting. And is that really a detail that a housewife would think to make up? Well, I mean, you're you're supposing that a housewife wouldn't have any sort of creativity. I suppose it just in that <laughs> in that day and age, 
Yeah, I know. You know, to, yeah. to think scientifically in that way. It's not it's not that, oh, she's she's unintelligent or she's just a housewife. It's just that is a very peculiar detail. It makes yeah. it seem more legitimate to me is what I'm trying to say. I know. I was just messing with you. Yeah, I know. Because you can. <laughs> <laughs> that's, just, that's just my nature, you know. <laughs> uh, she said that it seemed to have a tail or a stream of smoke clinging to it. I couldn't judge how high it was, but it was of a terrific size. She stated, and the whole neighborhood saw it. It then named some additional witnesses with their addresses, of course. It was bright and seemed to go fast, but every once in a while it looked like it was turning or something because it twinkled like a star. It definitely wasn't a plane. I've never seen anything like it before. It was spinning. Mrs. Ferguson thought of it as spinning too, but to her it seemed to have a sort of halo around it. She too agreed that it was huge in size and very high in the sky. Her friend Mrs. Ferguson reported it didn't move like a plane, more like a balloon, except balloons move smoothly, and this was jerky. So there you go. That was a newspaper article. And a lot of these reports talk about this jerky motion, wavering or quavering motion, not a smooth flight path. They're very similar descriptions across all of these many witnesses that I find very interesting and compelling. All right. I'm not sure which one you're on because I was scrolling around and poking okay. ahead. The next one is the famous. Oh. The infamous Kenneth, Kenneth Arnold. Arnold. Yes. <laughs> June 24th at 3 p.m. Good old Kenny boy was flying his airplane near Mount Rainier when he saw some UFOs. And we did a whole case file on this, so I won't go into a whole lot of detail other than to say that probably the reason this case is so famous is because he took really good measurements and he was aware of things like angular size and stuff like that. And he, he went to great lengths or, or at least he had the, the presence of mind to take measurements using, um, what did he use? I don't know. He used like an object to measure the size of these things. Here's a quote I'll read through just for this one. He said, here's a quote from Kenneth Arnold. I spent the next 20 to 30 seconds urgently searching the sky all around to the sides and above and below me in an attempt to determine where the flash of light had come from. The only actual plane I saw was a DC-4 far to my left and rear, apparently on its San Francisco to Seattle run. My momentary explanation to myself was that some lieutenant in a P-51 had given me a buzz job across my nose and that it was sun reflecting off his wings as he passed that had caused the flash. Before I had time to collect my thoughts or to find a close aircraft, the flash happened again. This time I caught the direction from which it had come. I observed far to my left and to the north a formation of very bright objects coming from the vicinity of Mount Baker, flying very close to the mountaintops and traveling at tremendous speed. I observed a chain of nine peculiar-looking aircraft flying from north to south at approximately 9,500 feet elevation and going seemingly in a definite direction of about 170 degrees. So he gives a really good description, and there's a lot more detail than that that I go into on the case file we did, so we'll just leave it at that. All right, next up, Agent Ether. Next up, it looks like it's a big one, Prospector Compass Incident up in the Cascade Mountains in Washington. There's actually quite a bit of information on this one. Again, we could probably do a whole case on it. It took place in the afternoon, June 24th, uh, just about the time Kenneth Arnold lost sight of his objects. One Fred Johnson, who's a prospector, saw six shaped disc-shaped craft flying over the Cascade Mountains. They were slightly round with a tail and about 30 feet in diameter. He didn't think they were flying in any sort of formation, but they did bank together in a turn, and the sunlight flashed off of them. His compass began to spin wildly, and when the objects vanished, the compass returned to normal. There's actually a report to the headquarters of the 4th Airport's 
Gosh, there's actually a report to the headquarters of the 4th Air Force in Hamilton Field, California, dated August 1947. The subject is flying disc. It's to Special Agent in Charge, FBI, U.S. Department of Justice. The attached true copy of a letter from Mr. F.M. Johnson was received by this office August 22nd. Your attention is invited to the similarities between Arnold's earlier report and this gentleman's report. A possibility exists that Mr. Johnson might have some might have read some of this in the newspapers when Arnold was published read this matter. This headquarters does not intend to investigate this incident. It is requested that a result of any interview you may make be furnished to this headquarters. Almost like they're suggesting that he's just making it up because he saw Kenneth Arnold sighting in the papers. But what if he'd only reported it after Kenneth Arnold reported his sighting and it happened around the same time, sort of corroborating Kenneth Arnold's sighting? So I guess he submitted the report because he had read several days following his observations, he'd had another sighting. So he was, I don't know, he he reported something to the paper and then he reported a second sighting and he colored, quote unquote, he colored his report with inference of huge magnetic fields as to the implications of which he was obviously uninformed. That was the opinion of the Air Material Command. Hmm. Well, maybe something weird happened and he didn't know what to make of it and he thought it might be magnets or magnetic forces or something. Well, he did mention something about his compass, so that makes sense to me. Right. All right. Also, June 24th, once again, you know it, uh, in Diamond Gap, Washington. This one also at about 3 p.m., a member of the Washington State Forest Service who was on fire watch at a tower at Diamond Gap, which is a small settlement near the town of Salmon, just south of Mount Rainier. Ugh, I can't talk. He saw something in the sky, and he said that it looked like flashes in the distance quite high up in the east, and they seemed to be going in a straight line and made a strange noise higher pitched than most airplanes make. This appears like it very well could be a corroboration of um, Kenneth Arnold's sighting, but who knows? And that particular case, actually, if you investigate, comes with about 10 different newspaper clippings reporting on the incident, including the Union Bulletin and the Sunday Oregonian. And apparently the discs were labeled as naval planes. And beyond that, the 13th District had no comment. Naval planes? Ha! (laughs) What's the Navy doing over land in the Washington? Aren't they supposed to be in the ocean? (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. Um, Next we have just a a little blurb, unless you wanted to say more about that particular one, Agent Ether. Not unless you want me to just read the uh, newspaper clippings. Well, maybe one of them. Okay. Why uh, not? I, I kind of that stuff. You know, take it with a grain of salt because sometimes newspapers tend to sensationalize things, but it can also be a good source of information, though. All right, here we go. It's a little lengthy. Are you sure? Yeah. Whatever. Go for it. Okay. A Portland man, VC Briss. How did you pronounce it? Brissentine. 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 Is that what I said? Presentine. Okay. Of address <laughs> given, thinks he might have the answer to the flying saucers reportedly seen first by Kenneth Arnold, Boise businessman, and since then reported by a growing number of people throughout the United States. He said, uh, let's see, designating the XF5U1 or flapjack. The odd-shaped plane had a top speed of well over 500 miles an hour when equipped with a gas turbine. A Seattle representative of the 13th Naval District has no comment. One of the latest reports of flying disks came from Clyde Honian, manager of a bulb-growing con- bulb-growing concern. Manager of a bulb. Must be something else. They, You know, they used to grow light bulbs back then. 
manager of a bulb. Okay. They didn't actually manufacture them. Growing concern near Woodland, Washington, who said that he saw nine or ten of them skimming along silently between 1,000 and 2,000 feet Friday. They were going fast, but not any 1,200 miles an hour. I'd say twice as fast as an ordinary airliner, he declared. The peculiar thing was the way they moved, lilting back and forth, tipping up and down and undulating. And every time they reached the right reflection angle, the flashes came. Lieutenant Colonel Harold R. Turner, White Sands, New Mexico, proving ground commandant, declared the disks may have been jet airplanes, which have circular exhaust pipes that might give the illusion of disks when heated. However, General Carl Spotts, AAF Washington, D.C., in an answer to the query regarding the possibility that the objects were Army flying wings, said Army Air Forces have no aircraft that could fit reported descriptions of objects. They are not jet-propelled flying wings. Robert W. Hubach of Address Given uh, said that Saturday he also saw some shiny silvery objects that didn't look like airplanes. And the reports continue. So it's it's a few witness accounts. Oh, nice. Yeah. So I'll just keep it to that one. Okay. Just, just um, real briefly here, a lot of the time people say that these sightings can be attributed to the flying flapjack. And we've talked about this before on the show, but there's a couple of airplanes. There's the flying pancake, the Vought V-173. I'm looking here. I don't see... Oh, number built. There's only one of these things ever built. And it was... Um, let's see. Does it say where it was flown out of? And it doesn't matter because there were not eight or ten in a row or whatever. There's just one of these things ever built. And it had a top speed of 138 miles an hour. And it took seven minutes to climb to 5,000 feet altitude does not match these descriptions at all. And then the more well-known Vought XF-5U, which I believe you just mentioned, which is the flying flapjack, uh, there's only two of those ever built. And again, an experimental aircraft that was not flown all that often and definitely not in groups of 10 or 8 or whatever because only two of them ever existed. And let's see, the maximum speed of this thing was actually a lot better as 452 miles an hour. So that's kind of interesting, but still, nonetheless, the point is, is that um, these sightings cannot be accounted for by flying wing type or flapjack type airplanes. And the military has generally said that because they just didn't have them to match these sightings. But I just wanted to point that out. I don't know where you are in your list of cases. Uh, let's see. So I was going to go to the next one, which is, again, June 24th. There's not really a whole lot on this one. It just says a humanoid report on the same day as I see. Arnold mm-hmm. had his sighting, and that's it. Just there's, there's no links to anything. There's no anything else. It's just a humanoid report, apparently, that was on June 24th. Maybe we could find June 24th, Pendleton, Oregon. Oregon. It's possible that we could find more references or reports on that, but not today. Humanoid report, though, so that's kind of interesting. And then I'll do the next one, the last one we have for June 24th, which was 10 to 12 miles east of Joylay, Illinois. This one happened at 1.50 p.m. An employee for 38 years of the Elgin, Joylay, and Eastern Railroad named Charles Castle was walking along a highway on his way to work when he saw nine speeding discs in the air, he described them as a string of flat circular objects going faster than anything I've ever seen. Castle, spelled K-A-S-T-L, said he could see no connecting link between them, but they acted like the leading disc had a motor in it to power the others because when it flipped, the others flipped as well, almost as if they were connected. And when it righted itself, the others also did that. They looked like they were a very high altitude, but the witness is not really sure, maybe something like 4,000 feet, and they were heading north to south. And this is, there's actually newspaper articles and stuff about this one as well, but maybe we will skip that this time around. 
All right. Our next case is on what? The 27th? Yes, June 27th. And we have a Clyde Homan who phones in to, to uh, give a, a report to the journal. And he's a manager of Tulips, Inc., which is a bulb-growing property two miles south of that city in southwestern Washington. And he said he saw objects, um, his, his farm foreman saw objects. And so he ran to the door because his uh, foreman called him over, and he glimpsed the objects as they were disappearing in the southeast. He said a bright flash had come in through his windows, and he'd looked up into the sky and seen two things in two groups pretty close together. He didn't get an exact count, but they were definitely in a bunch, and then there was the same number who came in second behind it, some four or 500 yards. He couldn't make out the shape because it was very bright, reflecting like the sun from metal, but not mirrors. The flash was so bright, he said, I couldn't make out the shape behind it. They were going fast, but not 1,200 miles an hour. So this sounds like the other witness from the newspaper article that I was reading about who owns the Tulip Inc. bulb growing property. Ah, tulip bulbs. Tulip bulbs. Right. He said the day was cloudy. Pretty cloudy here with sunshine occasionally through the clouds, but there were lots of holes in the blue sky. And anyways, the clouds were high and these things weren't over one to 2,000 feet up and were flying under the clouds. And there wasn't any sound, not a trace of vapor trail, just these things sailing along. As soon as I saw them, I ran to the warehouse and called the foreman and he got to the door to see the second wave. They came up over the hill to the north and were following a straight line along the Pacific Highway. They were very flat, very, very thin, particularly when you saw them on edges, they were banking as very bright. He He wasn't sure how fast the objects were going, and I am not too excitable, and I have good eyesight, and I know what I saw this afternoon. I'm surprised you don't have reports from others having seen them today. Nice. Yes. Really interesting case. All right, it's it's getting on in time here, so maybe do one more before we get out of here. The next one we'll talk about happened on June 28th, and this one was 30 miles northwest of Lake Mead, Nevada. And no, it is not an actual Lake of Mead. Stu- <laughs> stupid joke. Oh my goodness. Bad joke? I don't know. Oh my goodness. I'm phoning that one in. I apologize for that bad joke. Anyways, 3.15 p.m., a pilot from Brook Air Force Base, San Antonio, Texas, was flying a F-51 fighter or a P-51, same thing, at about 6,000 feet altitude when he saw a tight formation of five to six white circular objects off of his right wing. And he said they looked like they were about three feet in diameter. So that's kind of an interesting, these are like tiny little guys, right? Yeah. These are like Frisbee, little tiny, well, big Frisbees, I guess, but little tiny UFOs. Anyways, they're flying off of his right wing and they were at about 6,000 feet altitude and moving approximately 285 miles an hour. Now, this is kind of weird because we don't have any three-foot disc-shaped objects that can move that fast that I'm aware of. (laughs) So it's kind of a weird one. And there is more to this case, I'm sure. Let me. There's actually a blue book file. Yeah, so there's a lot more to this case, but we'll just leave it there for now. Uh, it's. I think it's about time to wrap it up. Everybody is getting tired. I had a long hike earlier, so I'm plum tuckered out, as they might say in Straya. Do they say that in Straya? I think they do, because I played a video game that was made in Straya. Uh, I need to work on my accent, I guess, in Straya. Uh, and one of the one of the characters in that video game, an NPC, says, "I'm plum tuckered out," and then he dies. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, unless they made it up, I'm assuming that they say that sort of thing there. All right then, Down and under. With, and with that. All right, yeah, and with that, thank you everybody so much for listening. We really enjoyed this one this time around. This was a lot of fun to look at this many cases. Thank you guys so much for listening. 
And if you enjoyed the show, you could really help us out by leaving us a good review wherever you listen to podcasts and suggesting the show to your friends. And family. And family. And, and strangers. Oh, and also I forgot to call out the, uh, yeah, on social media, on Reddit or whatever, you know, go ahead. Go nuts, man. But um, I forgot to mention we do have a Patreon and we've got three tiers for you. The first tier will get you early access and after hours. The second tier will get you um, bonus episodes. And the last tier will get you the ability to vote on upcoming topics like this one. And there are a lot of bonus episodes and bonus material. Yeah. And if you look, you can look on our Patreon and I've tagged everything. Tagged bonus will be either bonus episodes or... Um, or after hours, or something that's not available on our general feed that you get with your podcast player. And you can even look at audio previews on there to see if it's your cup of tea. I think that I turned that on so you can listen to the beginning five minutes or so of each one if you want to check that out. So go have a look. All right. Thanks, everybody. Until next time, keep it strange.